I invite you to uh, turn to our scripture passage today. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Luke 1, 26 to 38. Starting in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. And this is God's word. Our Father, we ask that we thank you that just as your word will never fail, your word to us today will not fail us. And so we pray that you will speak your words into every one of our hearts. We pray that you will shine your light. Show us our sin, but show us the love that we have in the hope of the world, Christ. Speak to us now, O Lord. Speak hope into our lives. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Nights are always longer in wintertime. I remember a number of years ago, it was the last night of a week-long training exercise in January in the woods in Quantico, Virginia. And 25% of us at any given time had to stay awake throughout the night in shifts in our self-dug fighting holes looking for any enemy activity, which was supposed to be some uh, country with a Soviet-sounding name that we were attacking. More often, it was a squirrel jumping from tree to tree or a lone deer out in the woods. And after this week long of training, we'd made it to the last night. We were almost done, and as a going-away present, it decided to rain on us. Now, camping in the snow is not too bad, but camping in the rain, a half degree above freezing, is a whole new level of miserable. And there we were all shivering. If you've ever been to the DC area, Quantico in particular, it's a bog of mush and marsh. And in the winter, it turns into a slush of bitter cold. And so as we shivered there, we had little reason to be optimistic. The sun had come up, and it was 7 a.m., and yet as soon as the sun came up, it was like a cold front moved in. And the only thing worse than rain in January 
is rain that is now turning to ice in January as we shivered there. There was nothing that we could look around at and say, oh, things are getting better, life is getting easier. It was impossible to be optimistic. But we had hope, not in our circumstances, but because we knew that helicopters were coming. Helicopters would break into our misery and whisk us away back to our barracks where we would have a warm shower, dry clothes, and heat. And the moment we heard that thump, 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 thump of the helicopters, our faces lit up, our salvation was coming. And then soon, faith became sight, and these uh, several CH-46s and massive CH-53 helicopters that could easily swallow 26 of us and all of our packs were coming into the landing zone. And suddenly the question wasn't, how cold is it? And how miserable are we? But who gets to get on those helicopters first? The helicopters broke into our shivering. Hope broke into that night of misery. And for Advent, we're looking at how hope breaks in. You know, optimism is kind of looking around at the current situation for some sign that things are getting better now. Things are looking up. Okay, this is something to be happy about. But what about when there are few things to be optimistic about? When things don't look like they're getting better. In fact, you look around and it seems like actually everything is getting worse. But even then, Christians don't lose hope. Because our hope isn't rooted in the latest news headlines. We're trying to read the tea leaves for some sign or the first rays of sun after a storm. Christians believe that hope breaks into hopelessness. Hope breaks into darkness. Hope breaks into our lives. And we're living in a time when there are few reasons to be optimistic. But we don't lose hope because hope breaks in. And that's what I want us to remember this morning. Hope breaks in, and we're going to look at it under three headings. First, hopelessness, and then hope breaks in, and then a response to hope. So hopelessness. In order to understand the hopelessness of our passage, we really need to understand everything that has happened before this. So Luke starts out with the announcement of John the Baptist, who is the precursor to Jesus. And this announcement of John's coming breaks a long radio silence from God. Because for 400 some years before Luke chapter 1, God's people heard nothing from their God. He was silent. Now the Old Testament, some 400 years earlier than this, ends with maybe some reasons to be optimistic. The Jews had just been able to return to their homeland. They've rebuilt their temple that was destroyed. They rebuilt their walls. But not all is well. The new temple isn't as grand and glorious as the first one. Not everyone returns to their home. Some decide life in these other countries is better than in the homeland. But maybe we can be optimistic. Look, things are looking up. But then a year passes, and another year passes. And those years turn into decades. And those decades turn into centuries of waiting for God and nothing. Has he forgotten us? And in those centuries, as God's people were waiting, things didn't get any better. In fact, they got a whole lot worse. The Jews, after the Old Testament uh, in those centuries, found themselves 
under a never-ending string of different conquerors and rulers, and many of them were not friendly. One of the worst rulers was a man named Antioch, and he came and he looted the temple, their religious site, their most holy space. He destroyed Jerusalem's walls that they had just spent so much time trying to rebuild, and he killed thousands of their people. He outlawed worship, Sabbath observance, circumcision, the cultural markers of being Jewish, and so many of the Old Testament laws. Any copies of their scriptures were taken, confiscated, and often burned. And then in their temple, the most holy place that they have, he put an altar of Zeus right in the middle of it. It's hard for us to imagine how horrible this would have been. This would be something like if today we were to be invaded, all of our Bibles taken and burned, laws were passed so that we could not gather for worship without being imprisoned or even killed, and then our churches were taken from us and turned into brothels. And these were some of the darkest days for God's people. And you looked around and there was no reason to be optimistic. In fact, things are headed downhill fast. Their religion, their culture, their, any reason to, say, to have hope was about to be stomped out. And this severe oppression led to various revolts. Some were mildly successful, but many just ended up in many innocent people being killed. And then in 63 B.C., Romans came and conquered Jerusalem. Again, another new ruler. And they brought some level of stability, but it came at a cost. The Jews would be subject to them. And they would have to pay heavy taxes to finance the rest of the Roman Empire. One historian describes this life in this time, right before Jesus' birth, as this. It was a place with widespread corruption and oppression by the rich, severe taxation. Anything they made was taken Rome had a, was quick to, to use the sword, and they would kill anyone who threatened unrest, and they wouldn't even hesitate to kill anyone associated with those who threatened unrest. And then the government was incompetent and insensitive to their needs. And so now the Jews are wrestling with this tension. God said he loved us, but it looks like he's forgotten us. God said how we were supposed to be a light to the world, to the nations, but now we've become just the nation's punching bag. They were supposed to be God's chosen people, and yet the only thing that they felt like they'd been chosen for was an undue amount of suffering. And so what do you do when you're living in the silence? God has said he loves you, but it looks like he's forgotten you. And not that it's just he's forgotten you for a season of your life, but for centuries. He's not just forgotten you, but your kids, and your grandkids, and great-grandkids, and even after that. And in those years, some of the most precious things of your faith and life had been destroyed. Maybe you find yourself in a similar situation. Each day gets darker. And maybe you see a little light after this horrible storm you've just endured, but then there's a new set of dark storm clouds rolling in over the mountains. Every little ray of hope that gets you excited, maybe now it'll be easier, is soon enveloped by a deeper darkness. Maybe it's your own personal suffering with your health. One bad doctor's report after another. And the false hope, oh, this is treatable. 
actually, you know, we just looked at it more and it's worse than we thought. You've been poked and you've been prodded and everything you're told is normal, but your body is still suffering and you're in pain every night. You're addicted to sin, to alcohol, to drugs, to pornography, to your own pride. You're in this living hell. You feel numb to life and you have nothing to live for anymore and you wonder what's the point in even living anymore. Maybe it's in your family that you see breaking down. Your children are making one bad choice after another. You're helpless to change it. You wonder, where did we go wrong? Your marriage is broken apart. You feel utterly alone. Maybe it's just looking out at our world and just you see the, the decline of our society. And there's so few reasons to be optimistic for a country that you love. You're losing hope. Each day brings a new darkness in your life. And it feels like God has forgotten you. And what do you do? And that's what these people, the, the people in our passage felt like. That was the world they had lived in. For all living memory, that's what they had known. And that brings us to our second point. Hope breaks in. So our passage begins by pinning the angel's announcement to Mary to Elizabeth's pregnancy, which we learned about just a little bit earlier in the chapter. And Elizabeth was the wife of this priest, Zechariah. And in Luke 1.7, it tells us that they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. But then in that section, an angel appears to Zechariah and announces, guess what, Zechariah? After decades of you know, trying, you're about to become a dad. And Zechariah is dumbfounded, right? He's like, Are you kidding me? I'm an old man now. And then, not wanting to call his wife old, it's funny, maybe he'd made that mistake before. He says, and my wife, she's along in years too. And yet what happens? Hope breaks into a barren womb. And a child is growing in there. When they had no reason to be optimistic, hope broke into their life. And then six months later, an angel Gabriel shows up and breaks into Mary's life. Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. But Mary's troubled by these words, kind of like when your boss tells you, hey, I need to talk to you for a second, and you're thinking, oh, shoot, what did I do to get in trouble? But the angel tells her, no, don't be afraid. You found favor with God, Mary. What did Mary do to deserve this favor? The text doesn't tell us anything. God's favor is always gracious. Hope breaks into your life, not because you deserve it, but because God is gracious. Hope doesn't rest in how hard you're trying, how well you're doing right now, but in a God whose grace breaks into our helpless and often dark lives. Gabriel the angel continues, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. How will this be? I'm, I'm still a virgin. This is the third time that word virgin is used. Before we know Mary's name, we know three times that she's a virgin. Look back to verse 27. The angel came to a virgin pledged to be married to Joseph. And this pledge of marriage, it's something like an engagement. And there was a, a mutual promise of fidelity. To break that fidelity would be considered adultery. And so this rapidly growing baby bump was going to cause all kinds of, of trouble and rumors in their family. And finally, then after telling us again and again she's a virgin, we then learn her name, Mary. 
well, how will this baby come? We weren't planning this. We weren't doing anything for this. The Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Mary, God is breaking into your life. The power of God is breaking into your virgin womb. And the language shows us that this child will be God's own son. Mary, guess what? Your womb is going to become a temple. The first home of Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel. And then the angel continues, says, guess what? Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. And consider just the contrast of these two women here. One of them is too old to get pregnant. She's been trying her whole life, and, and now it's, it's, it's done. She's had to put to death that desire. And then there's another who's too young, a virgin, unmarried. And when God wants to break into this world with his hope, he picks the two unlikeliest of women to play a central role. So many people today struggle with infertility. Some of us in our congregation have and are. And and there's so many things that you can do to try to have a baby, to try to get pregnant, from simple things to complex, invasive practices that turn what is supposed to be a source of joy into this boulder of stress in your life. But you're, you're trying it because as hard and painful and stressful as it is, you just want to increase your chances by a little bit of getting pregnant. Maybe we can do this. Maybe we can have a little bit more hope. If we do this, maybe this thing will work. But now imagine you're 55 and you've tried everything and still no positive test result. What reasons do you have op- to be optimistic that you're going to have a baby? I don't want to get, those days are long gone. What are you talking about? But hope breaks in. You're going to be a mother. You're going to be a father. You're going to have a son. And then on the other end of the spectrum, this young girl, your virgin, what chances have you have of, of getting pregnant? Well, none as long as you stay a virgin. But hope breaks in. Mary, the Holy Spirit will come on you and will give birth, and you will give birth to the Son of the Most High. And just think of the contrast of these two women's reactions. One brings overwhelming joy, and for the other, probably brings a slew of stress and questions and uncertainty. Christian hope isn't based on how much you can work circumstances to your favor. It's not rooted in how well you can set the conditions for your success. It's not tied to what you're feeling right now or how likely something is. It doesn't hang on how hard you're trying. Christian hope is rooted in the God who promises to break into our suffering and to make all things new. Verse 37, for no word from God will ever fail. God's word is, more, is infinitely more powerful than whatever darkness in your life right now. Hope breaks into your life. Hope isn't a fire that you can try to start by rubbing two sticks together really fast and trying to get some warmth. It is a lightning bolt from above that ignores the current realities 
and brings forth the economy of heaven into this present darkness. It is not something that arises from your circumstances and you trying so hard, but it is something that comes from God that upends all of your circumstances and says, this is how it will be. For no word of God will ever fail. And so what is it that you're resting your hope on? What is it that you're telling yourself, if I could only have this, then my life would be better? Can that thing make it through the coldest of nights? Can that thing hold you when you can't hold on any longer? Can it stay steady when you look around and there is nothing to be optimistic about? Every one of us, we're hanging our hope on something. And when those hooks break and your hope comes crashing down, you're heartbroken and you don't have any energy to get your hopes up again and you're afraid to get them up again because you don't want to be hurt again. You don't know if you can handle that. What do you do? That's why so many people cut their life short. Well, there's nothing to look forward to and I can't handle it. It's why some of us, we spend years and decades in a cloud of discouragement and sadness. It's why we find ourselves becoming bitter and cynical about everything. It's why we distract ourselves. We try to numb our pain with drugs or alcohol, money, shopping, food. But Christians don't lose hope. Because we know it comes from outside, and it's a better hope. It's a sure hope. It's a hope that breaks into barrenness. It's a hope that knocks down all the calculus of the news and the forecasters and say, this is where the trends are going. And it says, no, but Jesus is coming. And his kingdom will never end. And no word of God will ever fail. And that is our hope. The, the hope that breaks in here, it's not that oh, you can get pregnant after you've been waiting for so many years. Maybe God will do that, maybe not. The hope here isn't that thing that you've been longing for for so long, a better paying job, being able to buy a house, getting married, better health, a family that looks like this. God doesn't promise us any of those things. To some he gives them, and some spend years wishing they would have them. But what he does promise you is something far better. He says, you get me. You get my love. You get my life. You get plugged into the divine. That was the hope that broke into Mary's life. And this hope that we're talking about, it's not to ignore your suffering. It doesn't mean that God says, oh yeah, I know you've got these hard things you're dealing with, but look, look at this thing you get and just ignore that. No, God doesn't ignore any of your tears, Psalm 56, 8. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. There is not a tear that has fallen from your face that God has forgotten. There's not a sorrow that he hasn't seen. There's not a pain in your life that he has not written down in his book. 
He knows them all. And one day he promises, with his powerful hand of love, to wipe them all away forever. So that when you behold your God face to face and gaze upon his perfections and are overwhelmed by his beauty and his love, You will say without an ounce of doubt in your voice, he was worth it. His word has not failed me. And he has not taken anything away from me that he has not restored tenfold. He doesn't ignore your wounds and your pains and the things that have been coming from you. He turns them into testimonies of his faithfulness. That his love is deeper than the pain. And that is your hope. It's expressed so powerfully by Paul in Romans 8. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And do you believe that? Because that is true of every one of you who looks to Christ. And if that's true of you, why is it that you're letting your circumstances that cannot separate you from the love of God, have a bigger effect on your hope than this word of God that cannot fail? Can others see that your hope is anchored in something outside of this world? Or does it look like your hope is resting in the same things that everyone else's hope is resting on? And depending on what the news is when you wake up that morning, can either make your day or break it. Depending on what happens at 9 a.m. at work can either make you angry for the rest of the day or make you excited for the rest of the day. Do you live as someone who has a sure hope that is deeper, it is like a rock, a mountain that cannot be moved, and everything else that is happening to you, though real and though painful in comparison, is like a hailstorm trying to knock down the mountain. It cannot succeed. And so what is our response to this hope? This assurance we have, this is our our third point. And Francis Schaeffer gives us this wonderful picture of that response in his book, True Spirituality. I'm going to kind of read an extended section here with a couple comments. He says, picture it, the angel comes to Mary says, Mary, you're going to give birth to the long-promised Messiah. This was a unique promise, an unrepeatable. There's something totally unique here. The birth of the eternal second person of the Trinity into this world. And so what is her response? Think about it. Here she is, a Jewish girl, 17 or 18 years old, in love with Joseph, in a normal historical situation with normal emotions. And you remember yourself when you were 17, 18? She's busy planning a wedding, not a baby shower. This upends her life. So how could she have reacted? She could have said, well, I don't want that. She could have ran away. 
What would Joseph think? But Mary doesn't say this. You know, sometimes when God's hope breaks into your life, it means he's going to upend your plans and your dreams and your comfort for something bigger. She could have said, oh, well, now that I've got this promise, I'm going to exert my force, my character, my energy to bring forth this, forth this promised thing. She's saying, okay, I better do it. Don't want to let God down. But she could not bring forth that child without a man by her own will any more than any other girl could. He's saying, sometimes when you hear these promises, you think, oh, well, now it's up to me to make it happen. But then he says, no, there's another thing that she could say. It's what she does say. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. She says, behold, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. There's an active passivity here. You know, the active passivity. She took her own body by choice and put it into the hands of God to do the thing that he said he would do. She gave herself with her body to God. And this Schaefer says is the model of the Christian life. You give yourself, your whole self, to God to do what he says he will do. How do we react to the promise that God's hope is broken into this world? It means you don't run away from it because you don't want God's plans to upend your comfortable life and your plans. It means you don't put all the burden on yourself and say, oh, well, what started with God, I better now finish it, and you can never rest because you think it all depends on you. No, we give ourselves to be used by God. We open up ourselves, our bodies, our life, our dreams, to his presence, his power, and his direction, and say, I am yours, do your will. We become a people of hope because God's hope has broken into the darkness. Christians are called to be conduits of hope in an ever-darkening world. That we are to show people the light of Christ. That we realize that we have eyes to see beyond the horizon. We have a faith to behold a God that's going to break in and change everything. And so do the people in your life know that you're a person of hope and how you speak of things. If you're just relying on, on optimism, you can never acknowledge the darkness because then you'll have nothing to be optimistic about. But if you're a person of hope, you can acknowledge, yeah, this is really messed up. This is really dark. But guess what? Light is coming in. Do you show in how you talk about current events, how you react to the stresses of your life, how you deal with disappointments, that your hope is rooted in something different? Or does it look like everybody else? Our church needs to be a church of hope. That when people come in, as I said, there are a lot of hopeless people in our communities right now. When they come in here and walk in, do they get a sense, wow, these people aren't living, you know, in, in naivety. They know how, how hard things are, and yet they have hope. Do people sense the hope that we have in this community? And friends, you know this. Nights are always longer in wintertime. And you might feel like you're living through the longest of winter nights. 
And maybe even you get the first rays of sunlight only to have a new cold front blow in and the temperature keeps dropping. But don't forget, hope will break in. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to live in the reality of who you are, of your hope that breaks into our dark world. Every one of us here, Lord, we have pains and sufferings. We've been abused, taken advantage of. We've sinned. And we pray, Lord, that whatever that darkness is that we are facing right now, that we would know your hope is coming and has come in Christ. And he is coming again to finish that work. We pray this all in his name.